Heads up, horror fans. Say no to drugs and stay out of the basement. You're listening. We interrupt our program to bring you Final Girl Friday. Welcome to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. In today's case, books about scary movies and a scary television series from the late 90s. I'm really excited to jump into tonight's topics. I hope you like vampires because that's where I'm at right now. I am neck deep in blood-sucking freaks, as it should be. First up, I had the immense pleasure of chatting with Adrian Rowe, author of Blood Dry, A History of Vampires in Film. So I want to share that conversation with you guys. Then hopping from the big screen to the little screen, I'll be looking at five moments or episodes from the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV series where the vampires were especially terrifying. I also reached out to my friends and listeners across social media and asked you guys to write me some three-sentence vampire stories. I am really looking forward to reading those. You guys completely came through for this particular exercise. And because I have not forgotten that this is a horror movie podcast, I will wrap up with some vampire movie recommendations. Before I get started, I want to thank my patrons, Xerxes, Alan, Eli, Mel, and Suzy Q. I really appreciate your support. Even though I practically begged you guys to withdraw your pledges last week and you all ignored me. Thank you so much for continuing to champion this project in such uncertain times. As long as there are still people over on the Patreon, we will still be doing the patron topic poll. The votes are in for April, and it's a dead heat between 50 Would You Rathers in less than 50 minutes, and has COVID-19 made the happening less terrible? (laughs) So keep an eye out for that episode at the end of this month. If you are new to the podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on how you can join the Final Girl Friday Discord and get involved in our discussions. We have a really great group of horror fans over there, I feel. We tend to spam a lot of movie memes, but they're wildly entertaining. Be warned that once we get into the thick of the Buffy content, there will be spoilers, and be sure to keep a pint of blood by the bed in case you get thirsty along the way. All right, so a while back, in an effort to exercise some of my demons regarding horror movie remakes, to work through some of my bitterness with most of them. I talked a lot about Fright Night, both the original from 1985 and the remake from 2011, both of which, by the way, I really like. I also mentioned in that episode that vampire films really aren't my area of expertise. I've enjoyed vampire films in the past, of course, like Fright Night, Near Dark, George Romero's Martin. These are films that had a big impact on me as a young film fan and that helps lay the foundation for my understanding of vampires as a myth, as a monster. But it wasn't until I started doing this podcast last summer that I realized how much I still have to learn about what is a widely beloved and diverse subgenre. Enter Blood Dry, the latest book from horror aficionado Adrian Rowe, which, among many other things, added like a dozen new titles to my watch list and reminded me just how prolific and important the vampire is to the genre I call home. I read Blood Dry over the weekend and I loved it so much that I took a shot and reached out to the author, who was gracious enough to chat with me and answer a few questions I had about 
about the book and the themes that inspired it. Blood Dry is Adrienne's fourth book, the first three being definitive guides to the horror films of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And one of the first things that I wondered was what inspired that shift from a broad examination of horror films by era to a more in-depth history of vampires in film specifically. So I asked him, was there a particular film or event in your life that led to the writing of this book? And this was his response. First Scream to the Last, the series, was effectively based on decades of horror. My favourite decades of horror, so really fueled by just passion alone more than anything else, um, which is what made them work. Um, so after the final scream, it took a while really scratching my head to find that creative spark, to find a subject matter which would have the same sort of passion and give me the same sort of incentive and desire to get it done. Um, the vampire subgenre has always been one of my favourites and I was sat down watching one of Christopher Lee's Dracula films um, one night. Um, I think it might have been Prince of Darkness and it suddenly hit me. I thought, well, what, what better book to write than, than the oldest subgenre um, within horror? which is vampires. Um, they offer more depth, more history than anything else within horror. Um, the mythology and the folklore really speaks for itself. So if any subgenre was going to be tackled, it, it was going to be that one. Uh, and I couldn't wait to get started on it. Um, and as you've seen from the book, that there's, there's so much really to, to learn about it from going back you know, to, to sort of the 19th century, um, where the first sort of horror film was made in 1896, a three-minute short. Um, which was a vampire film, and incidentally, the first horror film. So you could say that vampires really introduced us to horror on screen. Um, and it was a timeline of events from there, really, right, right the way through to current current times. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting subject matter to cover. But but to answer your question, that's really the main reason, uh, my passion, and really to sort of sink my teeth, so to say, into the most sort of uh, historic subgenre there is. I was also curious because for me, reading Blood Dry, there are several films Roe examines that I have either never seen or heard of or that I haven't seen in ages. And it really created a resurgence within me. It made me want to go back and watch or rediscover some of these films. I wondered if that had happened to him while he was writing the book. So I asked him if during his research, he became a fan of one or more of the films in Blood Dry in a way that he might not have otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, when writing any any piece, you know, the research that goes in is, is quite intense. And I've, I've seen a lot of horror films, but I haven't seen them all. And there was a lot of vampire films I hadn't seen. Um, just to give you one, just that comes to the top of my mind, was uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which was a film I'd always meant to get around to seeing, one of those I just hadn't at that point. Um, so the book obviously gave me a kick up the backside and, and made me watch it and my word, I'm glad I did. So <clears throat> it's the first Iranian vampire film by Anna Lily Amipour, and it's just a beautiful film to watch, really. Uh, the cinematography is, is stunning. Um, as I understand it, the director did a lot of research herself, made everybody involved with the film watch Nosferatu. She was a fan of sort of spaghetti westerns, and she spliced those sort of um, genre pieces and, and really created something quite special, very atmospheric, cracking tone to it. And it is a vampire film. There are some, you know, regular troops and traits that you see, um, but it's very much its own movie, a unique piece, which in this day and age is, is harder and harder to do. Um, so, yeah, that film, I would say, along with many others, was one that I remember discovering through the course of, of writing, writing this book. One of the wonderful things about Blood Dry is that it isn't just a history of vampires in film, but Roe also provides us with a kind of 
crash course in vampires in general. He looks at the evolution of the vampire to the screen, not just on the screen. And he mentions quite a few myths and legends about vampires in the book. So I asked him if you had to choose which vampire myth or myths would be your favorite. I mean, as, as you read in the book, the myths just staggering really how, how vampirism came together through uh, a myriad of, of different myths and the connotations and, and stories can be can be seen the world over. I think probably um, ancient Babylonia was quite fascinating. You had the, 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 the demon, um, the demon in ancient Babylonia, which was effectively going around and, and, and sucking the blood um, from babies. So that's that's quite uh, quite a unique one. And obviously being the female demon, it, it sort of lent itself to the progression of vampirism. And we see in novels like uh, Camilla and, and films that are sort of rolled on from that. Um, that fascinated me. So yeah, I would probably pick that one. Adrian talks about Lily too, the Babylonian baby drinker, along with many others in the first chapter of his book, where he explores the folklore and origins of the vampire. He also taught me something about the origins of vampire fangs that I was not aware of. In this chapter, he writes, the early appearance of these undead entities would often be described as being bloated or plump, with blood sometimes visible over the face and mouth. Interestingly, although the hair and nails of the vampire would often be described as being longer than usual, fangs did not appear as a feature until the 1845-47 to 47 serialized story, Varney the Vampire. Even then, these were described as fang-like teeth. I'm aware of Varney the Vampire, and I was aware of it before I read Blood Dry, but I had no idea that that is where vampires having fangs, which of course, that's, I think, the first thing that any of us think about when we think about vampires. I had no idea that that was where it originated. To finish things up, I, I didn't want to take up too much of his time, but I wanted to touch down quickly on the final chapter of the book, where Roe asks the question, what lies in store for the future of the vampire? Knowing that I was going to be talking about Buffy in this episode, I was hoping he might elaborate a little more on his thoughts regarding vampires as they exist in other entertainment mediums, which thankfully he did. You know, the, the whole essence of vampirism is it can mean so many different things to so many different people. It is what we want it to be. So I think the importance of television and moving forward, it doesn't matter really how writers tackle it or what their perceptions are or how it compares to, to work of old. It's how people perceive it. And if it's a way of sort of introducing the subgenre to a whole new generation and people with completely different tastes and ideals, fantastic. Um, because there is no right or wrong with vampirism within the subgenre. Um, you know, it's very much a metaphor. And I think that it's fantastic that the that, that new writers, new directors are tackling this through today's modern form of entertainment, which is streaming. And I know a couple of Netflix, Netflix shows you picked up on and all the rest of it. It's all good stuff. You can't really go wrong. If it's attracting audiences and people are enjoying it, brilliant. I'm all for that because it brings vampirism into the sort of contemporary times and everything evolves and everything will continue to evolve, which is one thing I hope the book, uh, the book highlighted. And I think that's it. So thank you very much for having me on. Thank you so much for picking up my books. And I'm glad you enjoyed uh, Bled Dry. And good luck with your podcast and all your ventures. Cheers, Molly. Thank you so much, Adrian. I am so grateful to you for taking time out of your day to talk with me, shed some light on your process, and to share with me some of your thoughts on vampires, both in and out of film. Blood Dry also features some awesome interviews with people like Mick Garris, Dee Dee Pfeiffer, Tom Savini, and a forward by Tom Holland, who brought us Fright Night, among many other wonderful movies. Blood Dry is available on Amazon Kindle for $5.99, which is a ridiculously good price for how good a read it is. 
things. Whether you're building a library of the best of the best that vampires have to offer in film, or if you're just looking to revive your interest in the subgenre, you just cannot beat that price. I highly recommend heading over to Kindle and snagging a copy for yourself. His previous three books are also available for a song on Kindle right now. First Scream to the Last, The Second Scream, and The Final Scream. I'm about halfway through The First Scream right now, which is a definitive guide to the horror films of the 80s, and I am loving the hell out of it. And I do think the book highlights very well the point he made about how you can't really go wrong with vampires and how the potential for the exploration of the self within the vampire mythos as a metaphor is limitless. Periodically throughout my life, the sheer volume of vampires in film, not just the horror genre, in film in general, has felt to me quite daunting and there have been more than a couple of times where I have thought, okay, you know, there are just way too many vampire movies. I'm never going to get through them all. But reading Blood Dry reminded me of the many ways in which the ubiquitous nature of the vampire is not just a good thing, but a great thing. That we still, after all this time, I'm talking centuries, we are still finding unique and creative ways to both scare ourselves with vampires and to reflect on ourselves through them. And that's not something you can say about a lot of monsters. Vampires may be myriad in fiction, sure but they also have a thousand different faces. So the other thing I want to talk about today is just one of those faces, just one unique way in which vampires have been brought to us on the screen. Not the big screen, as I mentioned, because writers like Adrian Rowe have talked about it so much more thoroughly and with much greater expertise than I ever could, but also because one of my personal favorite takes on the vampire myth exists on the little screen, and that is the vampire as it is depicted in Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer series. So I'm going to take a quick break, and when I come back, I'll be looking at five moments where the vampires of the Buffyverse scared the hell out of me. So stay tuned. If you are someone who follows this podcast and you were expecting this episode to be released yesterday, as the title of the podcast would suggest, you can blame this portion right here, the Buffy portion, for the delay. Well, I mean, you can also blame my seasonal allergies and video games, but it's mostly Buffy. <laughs> I knew I wanted to talk about the Buffy series this week because my mother and I recently started watching the series together long distance, and that has been so much fun for me. Getting to hear her reactions to the show, her theories, and just being there as she falls in love with Sunnydale, as I did years ago. So I'm just in a very pro-Buffy headspace right now, but I wasn't sure how I wanted to talk about it. And more importantly, I wanted to make sure that Whichever way I chose to approach it, I would be able to maintain some degree of academic decorum, if that makes sense. I didn't want to just sit down at the mic and gush for what very easily could turn into hours about Buffy. And for someone who is as admittedly obsessed with the series as I have been for a while now, that is a real risk. It's tough reining it in. At first, I thought about breaking the vampire down as a species in this universe, explaining how vampires function on the show, what their primary roles are, and how they both differ and relate to the vamps we know from elsewhere. Then I realized I can't talk about some of the scariest moments of Buffy without spoiling, like 
the entire series. So I've decided to work from the assumption that if you're still here and listening, you're at least familiar enough with the Buffyverse that you know what the vamps there are all about. Unlike my usual lists, the moments on this one are ranked from the least frightening to the most, and I'm only focusing on the vampires here, so I won't be mentioning Hush, Afterlife, Conversations with Dead People, all of which are horrifying episodes but don't really feature vamps in an especially scary way. I'll start by talking about the vampire responsible for the scare, then examine the context to the extent called for in each case. Okay, I think I've covered myself. I swear, I am a student of the horror genre first, and a raging fangirl second. Let's not pretend the raging fangirl doesn't often hold the wheel, though. I mean, come on, let's be real. Okay, so number five, the Watcher's Council enlists a serial killer. Zachary Kralik appears in only one episode of Buffy, the 12th episode of the show's third season, entitled Helpless. The fact that he still manages to reign supreme in the scare department after all this time, I think, speaks volumes in favor of his inclusion on this list. A criminally insane killer in life? Kralik achieved all but entirely new levels of sadism for the undead in Helpless, from taking Polaroids of Buffy's bound and gagged mother to singing a jaunty tune as he enjoys the last few bites of Watcher he was snacking on. Vampires in this universe do often retain the memories and personalities of their vessels, but rarely do we get to see them embrace that personality with quite so much enthusiasm. Kralik was supposed to be part of a kind of twisted rite of passage for Buffy. His dream up by the Watcher's Council, and they held him prisoner for some time in preparation for it. When he escapes, where most vampires would run off to celebrate their freedom someplace else, Kralik goes right ahead with the plan in his own way to satisfy his own needs. Disturbing enough on its own, Kralik's sadism is made even more frightening when one considers that Buffy had been drained of her super strength as part of the test, which makes Kralik one of only a small handful of vampires that pose a very real threat to her. This vampire Empire is unique to this list as there isn't really one specific moment in which he's scary. He's just plain scary from start to finish. Kralik was played by Jeff Kober, who was just such a fabulous choice for this role as he added this unsettling note of whimsy to the character's violent nature. Add to this a haunting score composed by Christoph Beck. This is actually one of my absolute favorite episodes of the series in terms of music and some standout set design for locations like the abandoned boarding house and you wind up with a vampire and a story truly capable of making your flesh crawl. Number four, Xander and Willow kill Cordelia. My fellow Buffy fans might laugh at me for this one, but I can't make an honest list of what for me are the show's scariest vamp-centric moments without paying my respects to the undead doppelgangers of the Scoobies. Also found in the show's third season, episode nine, entitled The Wish, introduces us to a dystopian version of Sunnydale, home to vampire versions of Xander and Willow, clad from head to toe in black leather, hypersexualized, and out for blood. Not only that, but in this reality, they also work for the master, Buffy's nemesis from the first season, and deliver one of the most royally fucked up kills of the entire series. When looking at what exactly makes these vampires so disturbing, it's important to consider how they came into being. Cordelia, emotionally wrecked after having discovered Xander cheating on her with Willow, makes a wish to a vengeance demon which erases Buffy from Sunnydale. When she inevitably realizes how much better life was with Buffy around, she goes to Giles for help only to be killed by demonic versions of the people who had broken her heart in the first place. And they don't just kill her they get off on killing her together, tag-teaming her neck while aggressively fondling each other. 
In Fighting the Forces, What's at Stake in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Professor David Lavery wrote of this moment, At first, the episode works as a knowingly jokey take on the Buffy world. What fun, Xander and Willow dressed in goth gear looking cool. This playfulness disappears, however, and the wish becomes one of the darkest Buffy episodes. The moment Vamp Xander and Vamp Willow kill Cordelia, without remorse and with visible pleasure, the tone of the episode shifts. The professor nailed it. To this day, Cordelia's death, however fantastical, still haunts me. Number three, the master buries Buffy alive. I can't speak for other fans of this series, but the master isn't a character I normally find exceptionally scary. Entertaining, yes. Amusing and memorable, absolutely. Mark Metcalf is amazing. But the master feels, above all else, like a kind of caricature of an elder god, trapped in earth as old as he is, withered and mopey and sporting permanent fruit punch mouth from all the blood he's drained, yet somehow also rocking the signature leather in which we see so many vamps on the surface. He spouts ancient demonic philosophies, kills his own people when they fail to fulfill their duties, and throws his weight around a lot, in a very grandiose way. It's not scary to me. It's funny. That being said, there was one moment wherein the master genuinely freaked me out. In Nightmares, the 10th episode of Buffy's first season, the Vampire King appears topside in the cemetery as Nightmares manifest themselves all over Sunnydale. Whether or not this is actually the master, I lean toward no, but this version of him is fully capable of hurting Buffy. And while killing Buffy would be priority one for the master on a normal day, the nightmare magic has far more sinister plans. Rather than regale her with old world musings or demonstrate some of his elegant telekinetic powers, he simply hurls her into an open grave and buries her alive. It was an especially edgy move for a vampire typically prone to classic Dracula-esque theatrics. All right, number two, Angelus kills Jenny Calendar. I said I wasn't going to go all crazed fangirl on you, and I'm not. It's just, ugh, this goddamn moment. I know I'm not alone in this. I think most of you listening, even if you haven't seen the show in its entirety, you're probably familiar with Angelus, but for the sake of symmetry, I'll break it down anyway. The vampires of the Buffyverse were ruthless killers, yes, but few could hold a candle to Angelus, who, by many accounts, was one of the most brutal vampires in this universe's history. He was so vicious, in fact, that he attracted the attention of a tribe of vengeful gypsies who cursed him for killing one of their own, forcing him to lie dormant but aware alongside the human soul that had once belonged to his vessel. That soul, aka Angel, retains the memories of the havoc wreaked by Angelus while he was wearing him around, which accounts for much of the brooding and self-loathing that dominates his personality. In Passion, Season 2, Episode 17, when Angel achieves a moment of pure happiness, the gypsy curse is broken, putting Angelus back in the driver's seat and unleashing a world of pain on Buffy and her friends. One of the things that makes Angelus so terrible terrifying is that, similarly to Kralik, he takes an unusual amount of pleasure in tormenting his victims before killing them. Vampires in this world as a whole are pretty susceptible to boredom and impatience, which one could argue is a big reason for the failure of a lot of their plans. Angelus, however, is a fan of the long game, and angry with Buffy for causing him to feel human emotion, however indirectly, he makes it his personal mission to drive her insane. Surprisingly, our first taste of the evil of Angelus has little 
little to do with Buffy directly. After Angelus is revealed in passion, he snaps Jenny Callender's neck to a score Coppola would have been proud of, I think, then heads over to Giles's house where he leaves a trail of rose petals leading up to her body, displayed in true Michael Myers fashion across Giles's bed. It was a shockingly mature and impactful death, one which reminded the audience in Whedon's own words that no one is safe. I personally find it interesting that Angelus is made all the scarier in contrast to his heroic counterpart. If Angel hadn't been so good, it may have been a little less shocking that Angelus was so bad, but we the audience had grown to trust and love the character of Angel just as Buffy had, underestimating his darker half. The writers of the Buffy series understood their viewers in an almost unprecedented way back in 1998, and the death of Jenny Callender is evidence of that. All right, number one. We're gonna get through this, guys. It's gonna suck, but we're gonna get through it. Spike tries to rape Buffy. Over the years, we witnessed countless cruelties at the hands of Buffy's vampires. From the ones I've mentioned here today to many others, the vamps of this universe have killed hundreds of people, shed gallons of blood, turned innocent kids into demons, unleashed hell itself, and they've done all of this in a way that feels kind of familiar. Despite the ways in which they differ from the vamps we know and love in popular films and literature, at the end of the day, they're vampires, and they behave like vampires. In Seeing Red, the 19th episode of the show's exceptionally dark sixth season, the character of Spike reached new depths by doing something so devastatingly wrong that it managed to terrorize both Buffy and the audience in a way no amount of bloodshed ever could. When we first meet Spike back in the show's second season, he's little more than a throwaway villain, a snarky Billy Idol wannabe bent on killing the Slayer and claiming Sunnydale for himself. But as the series progresses, we begin to realize through him just how complicated a vampire can be, especially when heavily influenced by the memories and personality of its vessel. In life, William was a deeply emotional and lovesick man. He wrote poetry and cared for his elderly mother. He was sensitive and respectful. The after effect of that nature on Spike is astounding, really. Like, especially when one considers that no other vampire in the history of the series has ever developed a conscience or a sense of honor similar to what we find in humans. I mean, remember, Angel is a good guy, but he isn't a vampire. Angelus is. But Spike, removed of his ability to hurt humans by the initiative, finds himself spending an inordinate amount of time around them and, inevitably, falls in love with Buffy. During his relationship with the Slayer, he slowly develops a sense of warped humanity. The problem being, of course, that he isn't human, and his demonic nature continues to interfere with his efforts to be a good man. In Seeing Red, easily the most controversial episode of the series, Spike goes to Buffy, who has been trying for ages to break up with him, hoping to change her mind. When she insists that they are wrong for each other, tries to make him see reason, he crosses the most major of lines by forcing himself on her. Buffy ultimately stops him before things get even more out of hand than they already are, but it's too late. He crossed the line, and the audience, myself included, was beside itself. It didn't help that the scene delivered much the same realism found only in The Body, which is, in my opinion, the hardest episode of Buffy to watch overall, and the actors, as uncomfortable as they were during filming, really brought the stark reality of the situation home. James Marsters, the man behind Spike, has regarded filming that scene as one of the worst days of both his professional and personal life. He also said of the episode, It was keeping with the way that the writing had been going the whole time, so I think it was a worthy risk, but it very nearly blew up in all of our faces. We did traumatize the audience, maybe a little too much. 
Whether or not you fall on the side of redeemable or irredeemable here, I'm, I'm not here to weigh in on that debate, but I imagine, like me, you found Spike in this moment truly mortifying. Throats ripped out, children sacrificed, kittens turned into nighttime snacks, somehow all of this we can stomach from our vampires. But seeing red achieved an entirely new shade of darkness, one which scarred fans of the Buffy series and has continually shocked audiences for nearly 20 years. I hate to end this segment on such a grim note, but that's all I've got. Those are the moments and the episodes of the Buffy series where the vampires scared the crap out of me. If your list would contain different moments, different episodes, come to the Discord and share your list with me. I would love to hear your take. I'm also just always happy to meet other Buffy fans. One of the things that I love most about the Buffy series is that going back to the idea of the vampire as an allegory, the horror genre in general is I mean, obviously, one of my personal favorite ways to address and work through even the most difficult aspects of life. Buffy the Vampire Slayer used horror as such an effective backdrop. No matter how painful or trivial or complicated the subject matter may be, it's always dealt with in a dark alley with some mysterious creature lurking in the shadows. And oftentimes that creature itself is also a representation of something else. There are just a lot of levels, a lot of layers to it. I feel that the writers of Buffy the Vampire Slayer had a deep understanding and appreciation for the power of horror and more specifically of the vampire. Continuing on in the spirit of this week's examination of the vampire as a conduit for versatile storytelling, I turned to you guys and asked you to write me some vampire stories. But I wanted to firstly try to speed things along, but also keep it interesting. So I asked you to limit your stories to three sentences or less. I got some great responses. Some of these are depressing as shit. Some are funny. Some cheated super hard. I have never seen so so many semicolons in my life, but I'm counting those stories as well. They they count. I'm just so glad you guys were into it. I'm always looking for new ways to incorporate my friends and listeners into this project. I don't really have a setup conducive to guests. I have had guests in the past, despite that, and I would like to do much more of that in the future. I just don't currently have the ideal equipment for it. So the best thing I can do to bring you guys into this with me is to just do stuff like this, to ask for your input or give you writing assignments. So that's what we did this week. I think I've prefaced more than enough, so let's just get to it. I hope you have some holy water handy. Here are some three-sentence vampire stories. Steve wrote, Time passes as empty seconds pile up to nothing. People flirt through my awareness, here and gone, barely remembered. The stars die one by one, leaving a sky as black as my existence. Zach wrote, I met a dude in a cape. He bit me. He sucked. Alan wrote, a dark castle in a spooky dead forest. Flames of candles and red fabric show a figure appearing in the night. A wooden stake drips with blood and a howl of nightmares floods the chilling air with horror. Zanara wrote, He came, 
He ate, she died. Jeremy wrote, Father always told me it was unbecoming a lady to be such a messy eater, but it is oh so very difficult to stay neat when he writhes and squirms so much. Peter wrote, I saw her bent in the rain-soaked sidewalk, the light of the streetlights reflected in the puddles around her as she reached for peaches that had fallen out of a crumpled paper sack. I licked my lips, my eyes roaming over her, transfixed by the way her hair fell over her face, heavy from the rain, the way the lace of her black stockings peeked out from under her skirt. The last thing I saw as I swooped down to take her was the point of the stake she had hidden in her sack. Sean wrote, She walked into the chamber and the shadows grew large around her. The crowd was terrified as the lights went out one by one. She smiles, knowing that she and her family will feed this night. Jordy wrote, A vampire gets a job teaching a night GED class. He tries to get through to them. They graduate and he eats them one by one because educated blood tastes better and he found a loophole. Brett wrote, I lingered, looming upon the precipice of father time, inviting nothing daily but the hope of freedom from the anguish of deserted municipalities. Though be it refuge, it no longer deemed worthy of walking. For the populace of norms had far been removed and negated by myself and brother kind that I now hunted for sustenance. And this, now, has been the final mark on the definitive end of all species, the blood it left us all. Matt wrote, No way. I won't do it. Oh no, a vampire. <laughs> Kelly wrote, Everybody goes on and on about how badly they want to live forever, but that's because they don't have to actually do it. It's been so long, I don't even remember when this never-ending night began. Always anxious about a safe place to sleep, always wary of people discovering the true me, always checking my watch or my phone, a slave to the time, and how exhausting it is to be on trend. Kids these days are constantly offering their necks, when all I really want them to do is stake me in the heart. James wrote, He came, he bit, he flew. Thank you guys so much for your submissions. I think they were all fantastic. I really enjoyed reading them both to myself and here today. And I can't think of a better way to hammer home the fact that, as Adrian Rowe said, you can never go wrong with vampires. Okay, so I would normally want to recommend to you movies I've already seen obviously. But as I've mentioned a couple of times now, I'm just not all that savvy when it comes to vampire films. I would of course say that if you haven't seen Hammer's Dracula series, there is no time like the present to treat yourself. They are all wonderful in their own right. Yes, all of them, even The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. I love them all. And as a kid growing up in the like late 80s through the 90s, I was partial to the kind of rock star take on the vampire as seen in films like The Lost Boys, Near Dark, and even Blade. I would also say that if you haven't seen either The Addiction from 1995 or A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night from 2014, please add them to your watch list. Like, 
right now. When it comes to the subgenre as a whole, there is just so much empty space in my library. So what I've decided to do instead is to recommend a few vampire films to both of us, you and me, using Blood Dry. I have chosen three of the movies discussed in Rose's book that I've never seen and that I think look awesome. First up, we have Let's Scare Jessica to Death. This film, which tells the story of a young woman who moves from an institution to an isolated farmhouse with her husband, seems to play heavily on audience expectations as they become distorted by an unreliable narrator. Is this actually a vampire story? Or is everything we see happening only in Jessica's head? It's a question I'm really looking forward to having answered, and we'll be watching this as soon as I can. It looks fantastic. Let's Scare Jessica to Death was directed by John Hancock and released in 1971. Secondly, we have Vamp from 1986. If you are someone who can't get enough of all of the 80s nostalgia around every bend these days, you'll probably be as excited about this movie as I am. From a synth-heavy score by Jonathan Elias, Elias... To a vampire stripper played by none other than Grace Jones. This is a horror comedy that I cannot believe I've never seen. Vamp was directed by Richard Wink, and from what I understand, follows its main character during a single night of bloody chaos after some college hijinks go horribly wrong. And lastly, We Are the Night. For lack of a more eloquent phrase, I included this film in this week's recommendations because it just looks positively badass. What really piqued my interest was that the story, which follows a young woman's transformation into a creature of the night, had been kind of hanging in the balance for the writer and director for a long time. But then with the success of Twilight, he was able to use the world's renewed love of vampires to address some pretty dark themes. We Are the Night is a German film from 2010 and features, among others, Max Rymelt, who gave one of my favorite performances in Sense8. So now I turn to you. What's your favorite vampire movie? Or vampire trope? Myth? Legend? If you'd like to share your thoughts on history's favorite monster with me and my friends and listeners, you'll find an open invitation to the Final Girl Friday Discord in the description of this podcast on anchor.fm. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Stay safe, stay healthy, please take social distancing seriously, and until next time, creep it real.